The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome everyone to the Spiritual Brew Pub. I'm your host, Michael Camp, and today we have another very special guest with us. I'm really excited about Dan Henderson is an educator, an author, and an historian, and he's going to talk to us about his book, Confessions of Recovering Evangelical, Overcoming Fear and Certainty to Find Faith Through Doubt and Questioning. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad you're with us. Um, uh, I believe you're, you've been in education for many years, including a big chunk in the private Christian school uh, segment. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I, uh, I just recently retired, so it's been about a 30-year career in education, teaching at middle school, high school, community college level. Uh, about 20 years of that 30 were, were in private Christian schools uh, wow. here in the wow. Midwest. Right. So, yeah, okay. it's been quite a bit. So Dan's going to bring that uh, experience to the conversation. Um, Dan, I, I love the title of your book. Um, it's your story is eerily similar to mine. Uh, about uh, I, I, my first book published about ten years ago. The working title was uh, "Confessions of a Former Evangelical," but uh, it, it became <laughs> it, be, it became "Confessions of a Bible Thumper" at the end. Uh, ah. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to interview you. But for folks who are struggling with navigating or coming out of conservative Christianity, um, this book uh, and our conversation, I hope, will really help you. Uh, it boils down to, to really having permission to embrace doubt, ask questions, and find your own spiritual path without the fear that, that oftentimes stems from some of the harmful theologies that are out there in popular Christianity. So let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, Dan, I thought a good place to start would be, uh, could you brief, briefly share why you wrote the book and what do you hope it will accomplish? Well, why I wrote the book, that's a very good question. And uh, in, in all honesty, I didn't actually sit down and set out to start writing a book. Uh, the way it, it sort of evolved is uh, back in about 2005, and maybe even sooner than that, earlier than that, uh, as I was really beginning to embrace doubt and questions about my evangelical faith, uh, you know, about the only outlet I had at that time was to write a journal. And so I began writing because I was still in the evangelical church and, and the evangelical movement at the time. <laughs> and one thing you probably don't want to do is ask a lot of tough questions, you know, in some churches. Uh, right. <laughs> it's, it's, not a, it's not healthy <laughs> to do that. And so I wrote about it and kind of kept it to myself. And then, you know, around 2005, I actually made a break and left the evangelical church and I described that in the book. And I kept writing. I kept writing about, well, now that I've come to the point where I, I don't really see myself, I don't call myself an evangelical anymore. What do I what do I do with faith? What do I do with right. my beliefs? What do I do right. with the Bible? What do I what do I do with all these things? Exactly. And so I started writing about it. And uh, eventually, then along comes something like Facebook and social media and 
I, I ended up writing about some of that on Facebook pages, uh, got both good and negative <laughs> feedback from right. former students and, and people I knew. But I got a lot of encouragement, too, from that. And and uh, long about, oh, two, three years ago, uh, thought, well, there may be a story in here that can help other people who have gone through or are going through the same thing. As you mentioned, there's a lot of people that are doing that. Uh, and it can be a lonely place. It can be a very uh, frustrating place. It can be a very scary place because once you start to remove yourself or reconstruct your ideas about faith, uh, people around you who know you can get kind of upset about that. Yeah, they do. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. We've all experienced that who have deconstructed. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so the, the what I hope to accomplish to answer the other part of the question is not so much to change anybody's views. It's really not my purpose at all. My purpose really is, is to offer the book as some solace. Uh, I use that word deliberately because one of the first comments I got back from a, a person, I didn't even know them, they were you know, just on the internet, was your words have given me solace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I know now I'm not alone. Right. And there are other people that are experiencing this. And, and that's really what I hope the book can do is, uh, you know, if, if people are, are happy in their evangelical churches and they're, it's working for them, then my advice is, well, don't don't change it, stay there. However, the one advice I might give is don't be afraid to ask questions or embrace your doubt right. because yeah. chances are they are doubting and they do have questions. Right. But, but it's a little scary to ask those. It is, to, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, very familiar with that culture. Uh, you can ask questions as long as they're easy questions. Don't yeah. ask them too hard. And if we and if you don't like the, our answer, don't ask a follow up question. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> something yeah. like that. But and yeah, if you don't um, like and if you don't like the cherry pick Bible verse that I use right. to answer your question, then you know you're you, yeah you right. Know. Well, maybe I could come up with one other one, but you know, <laughs> no, I know definitely understand that whole thing and and the way people feel. That's right. Um, you know, I I, I kind of hope that, you know, people listening, they could be in a, a still in an evangelical or conservative church, or maybe they're starting to come out of it, or maybe they've already left, but there's still, you, it takes years to really kind of, there's a lot of loose ends that you got to tie up, you know, and, and it really is quite a journey. Uh, yeah. And, and um, I think that uh, people do need to know that it's okay to ask tough questions. And know that just because you're asking tough questions doesn't mean you're going to become an atheist, you know, the next week, or you're going to, you know, completely abandon your faith or something. This is not the case. I mean, there are some people that end up becoming atheists, but yeah, yeah. Uh, those are very, very few. And most people uh, who deconstruct, reconstruct something that is uh, still very strong faith or spirituality. And, and a lot of times, you know, there are also, um, you know, still, uh, uh, maybe still um, connected to Jesus in some kind of way. Mm -hmm. So um, you've got five uh, parts to your book, I believe, uh, yeah. deconstructing faith through doubt. And then you have a part on uh, faith and racial justice, faith and gay rights, and then um, how even evangelical theology threatens culture. And then some other uh, deconstruction her heresies in quotes so let's let's take a look at the deconstruction uh, uh, phase. Um, uh, you described in the early part of your journey, I had swallowed evangelical Christianity, hooks, line, and sinkers, but was having a great deal of spiritual indigestion. What was going on then? <laughs> well, it's, it, it, there was a lot of indigestion uh, in in trying to maintain uh, a position of being a teacher and a Christian setting christian school setting oh right you were still in a christian yeah. school yeah uh -huh. right right and and yet trying to make uh some things make sense to me that just were not making sense so let me go back a little bit when when i became a evangelical christian i was actually very young i was about 11 
12 years old. Right. That's very common forward, too. Yep. I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade. Yep. He came yep. through Omaha back in the 1960s and my mother, yep. uh, she took us there, my two brothers and I, and, and I went down there and, and gave my life to Christ. And, and of course, then I got connected. We were already connected to a church and I got involved. And, but it was the, it was in the 1960s. And as I was coming of age and, and Michael, maybe you can re relate to this. Uh, my experience in the church and with Christianity at that point was, was kind of a hippie movement. It was tied yeah, up with right. the hippie movement. Yeah, and sure. And we were called Jesus freaks or the Jesus yeah. people. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and that was actually very appealing to me because not only was it, very countercultural in many ways, but it really sort of focused on just the simple, true teaching of let's love each other. Let's yes. love, right, let's right. reach out with the love of Christ yeah. and, and just accept one another. And that fit together really well with things like the civil rights movement, the anti-war yeah. movement, women's rights, gay rights, and so on. Well, as, as I quote matured, and I'm not even sure the word matured is the right word to use. A lot of those ideas began to kind of get swept away. By the time I started my teaching career, it was right around 1980, which, as you know, was about the time Ronald Reagan came okay. came into the presidency. And, and I remember in in the, sitting in the teachers' lounge talking to some other teachers. We were talking about politics, and and they told me I was a very young teacher at the time. So you know, they said, Dan, if you don't vote for Ronald Reagan. You're not. Uh, you're going to have to question your Christianity. Oh my gosh, they were saying it back then. Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yep. it was clear, and yeah. and I mean, that hit me kind of like a ton of bricks. I yeah. mean, uh, it's like, no, wait a minute, that's not the kind of Christianity, right? I I, I signed on for exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. And yeah. so that kind of, you know, throughout the '80s, uh, and and for me to stay in the Christian school, I sort of had to accept some of that you know, Christian nationalism and uh, conflating faith with politics, mm -hmm. particularly on the conservative side. Right, right. Uh, and I, I I have to admit, I did that. I, I, I tried to swallow that. <laughs> and that's where the indigestion comes in, okay, because it, it just didn't fit with, with what I had understood to be the good news. The gospel. Oh yeah, I can I can relate to that exactly. Yeah. I mean, because that's what I call uh, a red flag, like, or oh, yeah. um, you know, it's like uh, you you have this experience with Jesus, and and I was involved with that uh, to a large degree too. And 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 the Jesus people, um, you know, I, I went to uh, Explo seventy two. I don't know if you heard of that in Dallas. Yeah. Yep. I didn't be I didn't like quote. <laughs> you know, commit to Jesus then, but I was certainly indoctrinated into the whole thing and started to get that fear of like, oh, I got to get saved, you know, or else something bad going to happen to me. And then later on, when I was in college in the late 70s, I, I actually, you know, made a, you know, decided to accept Jesus and follow that path. But um, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. You, you have these experiences and they may be very good and, and, and you feel like, like the love of the community or the love of God or the spirit is on you or whatever. And, and then all of a sudden, one day you realize that, wait a minute, what they're saying in the church doesn't quite line up with the, my experience. But who am I to question? I mean, in the beginning, you're like, well, I don't know. You know, <laughs> these they people must are, know. <laughs> they must know. They right? must you're know. Just they're like, the, okay. All right. And yeah, then they're the theologians. They yeah, know they, what they're talking right. about. You know, you're just kind of, you know, you're just in the beginning. You don't really know very much. Yeah. And, and so you kind of go along with it because you've liked to probably, maybe you've even liked the community and you go, well, I really like this church and community. I don't want to rock yeah. the boat here. I'll just go along with it for now. Yeah. So I understand what that's like, but, uh, at one point, you said uh, you learned to separate uh, faith from a set of beliefs. Uh, you know, what has that process been like for you? Uh, and why is it important to not think the definition of faith is having the right beliefs or doctrines, et cetera? Well, another part of the uh, experience I had, and, and again, I can label it the indigestion, <laughs> was just about every church experience I ever had which were many different types of, you know, evangelical churches. Almost all of them had a lot of <laughs> uh, church splits and church arguments and 
Mm-hmm. And uh, people getting mad at one another and somebody yeah. believes this and, you know, God's on my side. He's, you know, you're, you're obviously wrong. And and a lot of times it came down to matters of eternal damnation if you right. have right. a certain belief. And one of the thing, I mean, so as I as I reflected back on that, and by the way, by let me let me kind of fill in another part of the indigestion I was experiencing by ni- the 1990s. Uh, in my own personal life, I, I, I experienced a uh, breakup in my own marriage. Oh yeah, okay. I had two kids already, and and we were in the church. I was a Christian school teacher, and that sort of. That's sort of an existential thing uh, when you're in a leadership role within an evangelical church. People don't look too kindly on divorce. Oh, yeah. They don't want anyone divorced in leadership. That's for (laughs) sure. And I actually had a parent come into my office. I was a principal at the time at that point of the school. And uh, I thought he was coming in to talk to me about his child, which that would have been great. I'm happy to do that. But he sat down and he said, I hear you're going through a a divorce, an impending divorce. And I said, well, yeah, uh, unfortunately. He said, well, uh, God told me that you should resign your position because you're no longer a good role model. That's the the God told me card. Okay, I'm going to play this card for you. (laughs) And I wanted to ask him, well, what did he sound like? I'd like to hear his voice. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but, but right. you know that that sort of that sort of dogmatism and lack of care for people and for human beings. The one yeah. thing I probably needed the most was support and just, hey, you know, let me let me support you and help you any way I can. But that wasn't it. I mean, that was you got to get out of here. You know. Yeah. So, right. Right. So that those kinds of dogmatic positions that hurt people really led me to reevaluate. And of course, I was having doubts about a lot of things, evolution and uh, six-day creation and a lot of things that just were no longer making sense in light of modern science, uh, which again, were not the kinds of questions you wanted to ask, especially if you were a Christian school teacher. But uh, along with all of that, it, it, it became apparent to me that, you know, these beliefs, these propositions and creeds and all of these things that people construct are very divisive. And if that's what we call faith, you know, if you ask anybody, well, what is your faith? They'll, they'll give you a list of what they believe. Right. And, and maybe it's the Apostles' Creed. Maybe it's a church list of doctrines. I don't know. But the point is, every time you see that, that is a, that is a position that, you know, you may not agree with. And so it's a point of division. Yeah, right, right. Well, they have a very narrow statement of faith usually. Yeah. I mean, I mean, not narrow. That's actually very broad. I mean, you have so you have to believe all these things, yeah. and if you don't, you're really not a true Christian. Or well, it's like yeah. saying if you don't vote for Ronald Reagan, then you're not. Yeah, right, right. I mean, <laughs> Christianity yeah, right. is a yeah, take, absolutely. You know? No, but and, it, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that. So I set off on a journey, particularly after my divorce, to 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 kind of reevaluate the whole thing because it just wasn't working for me in terms of that dogmatic approach. And I started really getting reading uh, some of the church mystics and 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 teachers and masters of of the past who who talk about a different experience, and it's it's an experience that isn't based on belief; it's based on connecting a connection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And connection to God, connection to their inner self, connection to even the world around them, the, the universe. And these were profound connections that that when they experienced those things, they were like a revelation to them in terms of, hey, I, I'm part of a, a much bigger thing here. And it really doesn't depend on what I think about, you know, the end times, you know, or something like that. It's a true connection. Yeah, and that right. led me to the conclusion that I really think faith is about connection. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Not yeah. about right. what you believe, because right. we can argue right. about that. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, the problem is, is they're, that they're majoring on the minors. I mean, <laughs> they're yeah. they're, t- they're taking all these things like, okay, if you really think that Ronald Reagan is going to be a better Christian vote, great. Just don't tell, you know, tell everyone to do that. It's just, you know. Well, the logical conclusion of that, Michael, is we saw it in 2016. Exactly, it happened. That with the Trump. evangelical, yeah, 
Sure, then about eighty percent right. moved right into Donald Trump's. Right, and then they did camp. the same thing, right? And you know, right? And so, and 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 they're majoring on the on the minors, and they're they're not focusing on what matters most. It's very dogma, uh, dogmatic and and legalistic, um, and it's really sick when you really boil it down. But but you know, people are well-meaning and they want to they want to do the right thing, and. And anyways, there's all kinds of things going on. There's kind of a demonizing yeah. of all anything that's anyone's outside the church, et cetera. So, you know, you just have a fear of anything that's not, tr you know, true Christian. Right. So uh, it's amazing. But um, uh, you made one point about, you know, like, you know, uh, the uh, the young earth theory. Right. And I just wanted to, to make a point about that. that, that that's the theory that uh, the earth is only like six or 7,000 years old because it says that in the Bible, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Right. It doesn't say it directly, but it says it, you know, it's, it's in, in indirectly with the days of creation. But there was a, there was a, uh, an arm of even conservative evangelicalism that didn't believe that they believed, uh, 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 in a, you know, like, um, the, the age days are, are like ages, right? They, they don't, they don't have to be a 24 hour day. Yeah. And my dad was like that. He really got into that. And so he, he was following people like, Oh, I forgot what his name was. <clears throat> um, but th there's a, there was a wing of evangelicalism, but the, the point I'm making is that even though there were different, there were all these different uh, debates about some of these issues, but the really, the the really big you know non negotiables they didn't they didn't move on those you know right right, right. and those non negotiables were pretty broad yeah. so um, another question we have is uh, how did you handle the struggles with the Bible and and all the stories in the Old Testament and sometimes in the New Testament that conflicted with your own sense of right and wrong. Well, there's several different levels that we could we could speak of on that. And part of that goes back to my background as a historian and understanding that, you know, the Bible really does contain some really good and important historical information. Right. Mm -hmm. if, if, if you're going to be fluent in understanding Western culture and the development of the West, I mean, you're, yeah. you're going to need to understand yeah. the Bible. Yeah. And some of those stories. Uh, but. There were so many things, particularly in the Old Testament, that had to do with uh, God commanding certain, the, the people of Israel to do certain things that were just horrible. Right. Uh, you know, uh, genocide, committing yeah. genocide. The book, the book of Joshua, right. Yeah, I mean, and, and yeah. it was several places. In, and in, and it shows up in Deuteronomy yeah, and First yeah. Samuel, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there was the misogyny of, of mm -hmm. God, of how God... Uh, yeah you know, tells people what to do and right. on and on and on. I mean, all of these things just don't fit with modern sensibilities in terms of how we think about the value of each individual. And I, and it, it led me to, to, to the belief or the idea that, you know, the Bible isn't really so much God's authoritative word in all things for all times. It, it, it's a historical document that helps us understand how people were creating God in their image. Yeah. Through through the ages. Uh it has very little to do with what God actually really is or or, or trying to tell people. Uh people are uh, you know basically using and, and 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 the idea of the Bible being the authoritative word of God in all things that's a fairly recent uh concept. Yes, uh, in the last two three hundred years, that has yeah. really been used to uh, as a as a cudgel. And the problem is, people use the word of God to justify things like slavery, yeah, uh, or discrimination or segregation, mm -hmm. uh, which kind of gets me into that next section of the book. It, but yeah, right, right. But but the way I see the Bible, you know, it's not that uh, we have to throw it away and say it's no good. Don't read it. I mean, I still love the Bible. Mm -hmm. It's just that I've kind of stripped away the mythology around it, the, the, the false authoritarianism of it mm -hmm. that, that mm -hmm. people like to use. And, and in reality, what I've found is when you do that and take the literalism out of it, using it, everything's literal. 
uh, that's not really how it was written anyway in the first place. But when you take all those things away, what you find is some really good wisdom. You find insights into human nature that are right. just fantastic. I mean, right. you see it, it even in the disciples, Thomas, the doubter, or Judas, mm -hmm. the guy that betrayed Christ. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. human characteristics. And they reflect who we are a lot right. of times. Yeah, I mean, right. We struggle with those things. Right. So the Bible, I think, still has a lot to teach us and a lot for us to learn, but in, it, it's just not in the category of something I would call God's literal word that right. is good for all time. The word of God, yeah. I mean, I agree with you 100%. Actually, in my next book, I'm going to be talking about that a lot. Um, and the way I describe it is if you really, if you give yourself permission to do what you just said, you know, if you give yourself permission to say, okay, let's look for the gems in the Bible and this, and then let's be honest about the ugly things in the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. What you'll find is that you'll, you find that there's actually, it's like there's two um, voices in the Bible. It's like a two-faced God, you know, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you get the God in, in the book of Joseph in Genesis, who is like, you know, uh, has mercy on on this family and this guy, this this group of brothers who who threw uh, uh, threw their brother into a pit and wanted to murder him, <laughs> and right and jo and then Joseph is is it gets protected by God and ends up getting restored, reconciled to his family, and he forgives them all. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. It really is. Yeah. Right. And then you get down, and then you have the story of the flood, where God is so pissed off, he wants he just basically kills everyone on the planet except for twelve people, and he includes the the women and the children and the unborn. He's not even a pro life God. So yeah. I mean, it's just incredible. So if you give yourself permission to kind of divide that up, you you experience what you're you, what you're saying right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you have to throw the Bible away at all. It's, well, I think I think Jesus is a spiritual genius myself. So I think that that his yeah. when you look at his teaching and you compare it to some of these other things it really is stark and 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 if you don't if you believe in the whole bible being true and infallible it will mess you up because well, you won't be able to see the real good news because because god could damn you to hell at any moment i mean it's just well, crazy. that's why that's why you know i i'm in favor of cherry picking in yeah the right right <laughs> and well, that's, you know yeah, it's funny. That's true. Because the people that, you know, want to use the Bible, you know, in an authoritative way as God's word, uh, they're cherry picking, too, quite frankly. Exactly. Uh, they just don't think they are. They don't realize they are. Right, right. Uh, but if you don't cherry pick it, I mean, there are some just awful things that that happen in the Bible. Yeah, that you, that, yeah right. That you have to accept if you believe it's the infallible word of God. Yeah, right? yeah. you got to believe that God's got a angry, and, terrible, angry management yeah. problem and <laughs> certainly, murderous, certainly distorts, murderer. <laughs> yeah it certainly distorts your view of god then right and, right and so i i see the bible as it's written by fallible human beings talking about their view of what they think god is like which is really a reflection of themselves yeah at, at various times because the bible is written over a long long oh, period yeah. of time so that right, that right. that understanding changes right and then you have jesus come along and even he questions the Old Testament. He says, you had heard it said, such yes. and such. But I'm telling you now, right. he's not using the Bible <laughs> in any authoritative way other than to say, you know, I have some doubts <laughs> about what. Exactly. He That's what the point that I make in, in, in my writing is that we can pick and choose because Jesus picked and chose. Exactly. And actually the prophets picked and chose. They yeah. they critiqued yeah. the sacrificial system over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And that and that was the kind of the that was the way people viewed the Bible back then. Yeah. It was like you don't have to believe everything. We have to debate this and find, you know, and figure out what God is really saying. Yeah. Or what <laughs> so, we think God is really saying. And what we think of God was really <laughs> yeah. saying. Or or what is what is the most inspirational thing that touches your heart versus the thing that gives you fear and, and is actually what uh when you look at other ancient cultures it's really violent sacrificial religion it's like yeah you want to get you want to appease god you something goes wrong 
you disobeyed or something goes wrong, you got to appease God. You got to kill someone. You got to punish someone. You got to appease this wrathful God or else, you know. Well, and that, and that's why in my book, doubt is so important to finding faith. Yeah, right. So the other part of faith for me is not only I mentioned connections with people, but the starting point of that I think really is doubt. You got to you have to doubt those kinds of things you read in the Bible because you know, human sacrifice, uh genocide, those things have to be doubted. Yeah, they do. And right. Yeah. Um and and so it's through that doubt and then once you reach a point where you're you're asking questions and doubting all of a sudden, something else opens up. It's called faith. It's called connection. And 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 to me, the best example of that is what Jesus taught about the kingdom of heaven being in you already. Yeah, right, uh, right. And the born-again experience that, that is talked about is something, I don't think it's something you have to ask for. It's just something you have to realize, hey, I'm connected. Right, <laughs> I'm yeah. Connected it's to a, God it's and, and, right. and my fellow humans. Right. And the environment. You know, it, it, it goes way beyond just simple, you know, right. uh, a simple uh, explanation. But, uh, wow, that opens up a whole different vista of understanding spirituality. And, and so for for me, you know, it's kind of like I need to leave this religious thing behind. Right. Religion is kind of a man-made interpretation of what we think God is. Spirituality is a whole different matter of, of trying to understand my connection to people and to God yeah. and to Right. right. Yeah. Uh, so that's yep. where I've headed. That's that's right. where the book goes. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I'm 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 right with you. Um uh another part of your book was, you know, talking about um uh, racial justice and you were you ended up teaching in the inner city and uh that had an impact on you. What 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 did that do to you to help you uh maybe change your mind on some things in that area? Um, and and understand and 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 uncover some of the evangelical views of racism and white supremacy. Well, it's a it's a it's a deep story. And you know, as a young evangelical in our church, no one would have ever said to me, "Black people are inferior. Uh, we should segregate. Yeah, we right. should discriminate against right. anybody." No one would ever have said that. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you were to ask people, "Hey," Uh, don't you think we ought to dismantle some of these uh, systems of racism that keep black people from, you know, enjoying the same quality of yeah, life? Yeah, right. You know, getting loans for homes or whatever, you know, right. They would say, no, the, the, the answer would be what I call the Billy Graham doctrine, which yeah. is racism is an individual sin. Uh -huh. It's a sin of yes. the individual. Right, right. Yeah. So if I've asked Jesus to forgive me for my sins, then I'm right. not worried anymore about racism, especially if I don't practice it. Right. Personally. Right. I have no obligation to, yeah. to dismantle it. <laughs> and, and that's my experience. You talk about my experience in the inner city. My very first teaching job was a public school job actually in Omaha, Nebraska. And it was inner city high school. And that for me opened up uh, the whole world of what systemic racism looks like uh, in terms of, a community that had been redlined almost out of existence or into not out right. of existence, but right. into uh, oblivion so that nobody could see it. The hopelessness that the lack of jobs, the lack of any future, the lack of being able to just get a mortgage to buy right. a house or to inherit something from your parents that might have value. None of that was an option for these kids and, and, and it was they they appeared to me to be the most hopeless bunch of kids i'd ever seen and my heart just broke right them. right but i didn't really know what to do because my faith was telling me well racism is an individual sin so i don't yeah, right, i'm right. forgiven i'm forgiven and yeah, I'm, so the, the solution is to get all these racists convert it to jesus and in our church and then yeah. everything will be fine right but, but see that's the fallacy yeah. And it's the Graham doctrine. Let's yeah. get everybody converted to Jesus and right. racism will take care of itself. And exactly. the answer to that is no, it won't. No, it won't. Because there have been Christian racists all through history. The slave owners were Christians. Yes. 
they were going to evangelical churches and worshiping Jesus. Right. But, yep. but they were abusing people. Yeah. So salvation is no guarantee of anything having to do with being anti-racist. Uh, so to me, that journey continued. And of course, being in the Christian school, that was a another case where you, you found, you know, a lot of people that were coming to our school were trying to get away from, you know, integrated schools in, in various places. And it was a haven, you know, against the wrong kind of having my kids be around the wrong kind of people. Right. And so the church, the evangelical church has a real problem with this. And it's a very historic one. Uh, and I point out a lot of that in the book. But for me, what 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 I came around to is understanding that, well, listen, my connection, when I began to identify faith as a connection, I realized that, you know what, my freedom is connected to every black person's freedom. If they're not free, I'm not free. Yeah, right, right. If right. they're oppressed, I'm oppressed. Right. Uh, and so that created a sense of empathy that I mm -hmm. hadn't felt before. I felt right. I felt sorrow for yeah, right. kids, right. but I didn't have empathy. Empathy is putting yourself in someone else's shoes and trying to experience what they experience. You know, and as a white guy growing up with white privilege, I never experienced discrimination or right. racism. But I had to I had to mentally and maybe emotionally put myself in their shoes. And this is what I've been working on in the past 15, 20 years, is trying to understand that. Um, and one of the ways I've, I've done that, Michael, is visiting historic sites. Again, I'm a historian. Oh, yeah. so I, right, right, I love right. doing that. Yeah. But, but the kind of historic sites I go to are places like where the Tulsa massacre took Yeah, place. Tulsa or, or Whitney Plantation in Louisiana, which highlights the life oh. of slaves. And, and, and I can tell you that it was, an, it was an emotional experience to go to these places, to put myself in their place. And that doesn't create guilt. So a lot of you know, the other the other uh, defense that a lot of Christians use is, well, I'm not guilty because Jesus forgave me. So don't try to tell me that, you know, racism is a big problem. Yeah, but it's, it's absurd. Yeah, it's, it is. It, it is also says mourn with those who mourn and grieve. You know, it's That's like, empathy. you know, be, have empathy with people. That's right. Empathy. You know, yeah. and, part and of love. Empathy, empathy becomes the, the, the engine and the motivation for taking action. Exactly. So yeah. taking action to do what? Well, taking down the structures that still exist right. that that are racist. A lot of people don't even know they are, but they are. Uh, and then working to create an inclusion, uh, an inclusive environment. And and I'll tell you, it's it's it really has changed my perspective. I'm kind of one of the local activists in our community. Nice. That's great. Yeah. Uh, we started a Juneteenth celebration three oh, years good. ago. Good, uh, and it's mostly a white community, and a lot of white people right. say, well, why, "Why are you doing? This? Why are you doing this?" Right? That's right. a black holiday. I said, "No, it's not, because if you can't celebrate the freedom that black people experienced right on Juneteenth, then you have no business celebrating July Fourth." Why? I mean, I mean, I mean you turn it, put it on the other shoe. It's like saying, "Well, you know, I don't know." July 4th was mostly white people in control of our country. So I'm not going to celebrate that well, if I'm black or something, you know? Well, and like, white people fully expect that black yeah. people will celebrate July 4th. Exactly. Patriotic, yeah. But, but right. right. But we, we can't celebrate Juneteenth. Right. Yeah. yeah white people yeah. can't. Right. My, so, my goal right now is to connect those two holidays. They're very close together anyway. Yeah. In, in yeah. The calendar. Right. And create a sense of, you know, it's freedom season. Right. From June 19th to July 4th, we got to be celebrating right. everybody's freedom. Yeah. Well, yeah. evangelicals don't really like history. And and I mean, they Not just much. they want a very sanitized history, unfortunately. And when you bring up things that are kind of ugly or uncomfortable, they, there's a resistance there. And to me, um, history is the key. I mean, if you want a good theology, you got to have a good history. If you want a good way of life where you, you don't compete, make the same mistakes over and over again, you got to know your history and you got to avoid what we did in the past. And mm -hmm. it's not, the purpose is not to make everyone feel terrible and shameful and guilty. The purpose is, is to help us to understand how other people, it's part of love. When you, you know, why, why are you struggling? 
brother or sister. Uh, and well, here's if you talk to someone in the inner city, you'll learn why they're struggling. And and the fact that it's not just, oh, you know, a, a lack of, uh, you know, uh, an initiative to, to go out and do something. There are some real barriers that people have. Oh, yeah. And so uh, to me, it's just it's just a part of the of, of loving uh, each other. And I don't understand why they're so uh, resistant sometimes. Uh, it just boggles my mind. Well, here, here's the funny thing, Michael. I had to actually leave the evangelical church to be able to understand this. <laughs> yeah, well. well and to yeah, understand right, the empathy yeah. and compassion that right. Jesus really has for yeah, right. people of color and well, everyone. Right. And, uh, I had and, to get out of that. Yeah, you have to get out of it. And for me, it was when I studied like Jesus from a historical perspective in the context of his culture, I realized he's saying some things that we don't realize he's saying, you know, he's actually more, more progressive than we ever, ever imagined. And, you know, he wouldn't, he he wouldn't be recognized. I mean, if he walked in a conservative church, he probably would be treating them like scribes or Pharisees. I, you know, I, I, I think that's why in a lot of evangelical churches, you don't hear much about the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. You hear a lot about the Ten Commandments, boy. Yeah, right. Those are God's laws. Right. And that's another thing about the how to treat the Bible. What's more important? Jesus, what Jesus taught or the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, right? Yeah. See, I'd rather cherry pick the Sermon on the Mount. Exactly. Right. (laughs) So the, the other thing that, that you dealt with was gay rights. Okay. How did you come to give up your, I love the way you call it the evangelical behavioral police badge (laughs) and focus just on loving people, including accepting and loving those in the LGBTQ community. Well, it was a very similar process to what I just described about becoming anti-racist. It's, it's understanding our connection to people. Uh, But I, I highlight an experience uh, that that I had in my young evangelical days uh, at, in our church. I tell the story in the book about a young man that was in our youth group uh, who can, this would have been in the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, he was he was outwardly gay. He was clearly a gay man and uh, or teenager at that point. And we just treated him horribly. And we yeah. thought we had the green light to do that. Right, right. Because... If the topic came up of, you know, a, a gay lifestyle, then you took out your Bible and you turned to Romans or yeah, some other one, of the, one of the clobber packages. The, the clobber verses, and you just began hammering it. Yeah, right. And, and we, sadly, the more, quote, spiritual, I don't want to say spiritual, the, the more we, quote, grew in our faith, the more we hammered it. Yeah, right. You right. Know? And this poor guy, eventually left our church, uh, which I don't know how he stayed around as long as he did. We were terrible to him. Uh, and uh, he ended up in a, another church, a progressive church, where they actually were inclusive. And this mm-hmm. was this was very early on where they included mm-hmm. uh, gay people. Mm-hmm. He invited me and, and some others over to visit one day, and we went. And I was just appalled. It was the first time in my life I had ever talked to people who were gay, who also loved Jesus. Yeah, right, right. And I said, how can that be? I mean, that really planted a seed of doubt. But of course, in the little evangelical police behavior badge I had, I couldn't accept that. I had to use the clobber verses. Yeah, they're they're demonized. So when you really get to know them and hear their story, you realize, why? wait a minute, that's not the the view I heard. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know? So over time, I mean, I, I really have had to come around to a different view of that. Now, my by the way, my daughter, uh, she wrote, I actually included something she wrote in the book. And I want you to talk about that. I love okay. that story. Well, it's a story. She Now, she's not uh, gay herself, but she very she's she's one of these people that is always for the underdog. She's going to stick up for whoever. Yeah, right. And she right. had a lot of gay friends in high school, yeah. and she would go to the Pride uh, events in here in, in Des Moines or Iowa City, where I, right. where we live here, and uh, she tells a story about going to one of these events, and they had a picnic. The the people involved in the parade in a park, and and of course they were obviously some were gay, some were not, but 
neighborhood kids were throwing rocks at them. They were right, they right. were somehow thought it was okay. Well, you know, that's kind of <laughs> you want to react to that. You know, you get rock thrown at you. You you you, you want to right you know, feel like you you're going to give it back to them. But there was one lady. Her name was Carla. She went and and uh, confronted the kids and said, and she kind of chewed them out. You know, uh, which which was the right thing to do. But then she invited them in for lunch. She said, right. come over and join us. Come over and, and eat with us. Right. And it, it was the most counterintuitive thing that you would have thought mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It really impressed my daughter. I wasn't there, but she told me the story. And I said, you got to write this down. You got to tell people. Because ultimately it was about love wins. Yes, exactly. And these yeah. kids, they're actually, they were girls that were doing it. They came right. over and sat down and ate lunch with the group. It yeah. had a wonderful conversation. There was one guy there who was in the process of becoming a, a, a transitioning into mm -hmm. a into a female, mm -hmm. and he was wearing a dress. And the girls started talking. That's a really cute dress. I like yeah. that. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and right, they right. started this, you know, girly yeah. kind of talk thing. And right. but the point was, they came to see these people as human beings, right? Not as gay people. And, yeah. and and that was, I think, the key. And, and of course, again, understanding faith as connection uh, and spirituality as trying to attain to our highest ideal of being human as being something as opposed to something else. Uh, accepting gay people was just a natural thing. Love wins. And, and it well, doesn't matter who loves who. It's not my job to tell people who should love who. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, what? It, well, yeah. what happens in society is that, um, you know, you've got, okay, you demonize the gay community and eventually some, you know, someone is going to get really angry at the gay community and pick up a rock and start throwing rocks at them because you hate them now because, you, all right. And right. so it's, and, and then, and then what does, what do the victims do? Well, <clears throat> the Jesus way, this woman, Carla did the Jesus way. She, she walked yeah. into the middle of it all and said, Hey, you know, why are you doing this? And, you know, would you like to have some food or whatever she said, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and it broke the, the cycle and, yeah. and, yeah. and they were in a sense reconciled. They may, you know, the may, people's minds may not have been changed right then about how they viewed gay people, but as, as far as if it was bad, sinful or not, yeah. but they, they've probably, they probably changed about, well, these guys aren't in, aren't demons. Like they, they told us they were, you know, these they're really nice people, you know? So that's, that's well, the she way, showed that's them the, the way love of, Christ, of Jesus. Me. That's yeah. the way of Christ. And anyone outside the church, any outside Christianity yeah. can practice yeah. that. Well, she showed them the love of Jesus. Yeah. And I have a feeling that's why you, know, you, re you read about in the New Testament. Sinners love Jesus. <laughs> the right. quote sinners, you know, right. the prostitutes and the tax yeah. collectors. And right. my guess is, if I were bet, there were probably gay people that followed Jesus too. Oh, yeah, I'm sure there were. Because he loved them. He just right. loved them. Yeah, you just love people, right? And, and yeah, 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 and uh, yeah, that's that's a that's a great point. And um, we were we're kind of got about uh, one quarter of our time to go here, and I wanted to focus on kind of pivot a little bit and focus on um, what you call the dangers of evangelical theology. Um, how does that? How does their theology? And it was our theology too. For you know, we were. We were in it for years and mm -hmm. believed it and promoted it and probably and, and have regrets about some of the things that we did and, and, and practiced as a result of believing it. But how does it threaten the our country? Well, I think we're seeing it right now, uh, kind of the fruit of, of what uh, not only evangelical Christians, but I'll put myself in the middle of it and take blame because as a... a as a teacher of history in a Christian school, here's what I had. Here's what I had to teach. I had to teach that the United States is a Christian nation. Oh, you did. Okay. Oh yeah. It was in the, it was in all the <clears throat> curriculum. And if you didn't say that, you know, we, I had to agree that we should put prayer back in public school. I had to agree oh, that right. there all those things about Christian nationalism that we're seeing now. Mm -hmm. And the, and the realization I've had is that, you know what, that generation from the 1980s 
in 1990s that I taught, guess who's in power now? Yeah. They right. they actually believe what we told them. Yeah. And unfortunately, we now have, you know, the Lauren Bulberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens. Oh, yeah. Right. All of these people who really believe, they really, I don't think they're trying to fake it. They really believe that that passing laws to uh, re, restrict gay people, anti-trans laws, uh, anti-gay marriage, uh, all of that is an outgrowth of the Christian nationalist mentality. Mm-hmm. Now, now here's the funny thing, because I've been trying to do some research on Christian nationalism and people like you and me who have left the church, the nuns, the people that no longer affiliate. Um, and of course, our, the nuns, quite frankly, are the fastest growing group in the country. Yep, they are. There's like 59 million of us now yes. who, have, who were formally affiliated and have left. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the number of people in, quote, Christian nationalism or even evangelicalism is staying fairly steady or declining. But there's a difference between people who are, quote, Christian nationalists and just your average evangelical. I don't think you can group them together. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reality is most Christian nationalists don't even attend church. A lot of them don't even (laughs) attend a church. All they're doing is appropriating or co-opting the religious narrative to give authority to their conservative views. That's that's well. Let me just uh, stick something in there. That's why people like Stuart Rhodes, who was on, oh, I forgot what group he was in, was yeah, he in the Proud Boys? One of those. One of those. Yeah. He taught. He he spoke at an evangelical event called the Jericho March. Yeah. In in twenty uh, December of 20, yeah, uh, 2020. Yeah, December right in twenty twenty one. I mean, uh, twenty twenty. That's that just what you're saying. Those people, you know, they're not like, you know, really involved in the church and going teaching Bible studies all over the place and trying to, you know. Yeah. They're just Christian nationalists who have co-opted it mm-hmm. to get more people to join their cause. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But it's very, very dangerous. It's very dangerous. And so, you know, liberty is at stake for everyone. Yeah. You can't have a favored religion in a country and and then grant maximum freedom to everyone it's just yeah, those two right. things aren't good that's, that's a very good point for you cannot have a favored religion and still have freedom for everyone it just it, can't it, do it it's yeah. it's a square you know a square, right so square and that's what they, right and so yeah. yeah so this that's that's a good point christian nationalism is dangerous for that very reason it's just like saying oh everything ha- and and when, but when you look at the history again we go back to the history we really are not a christian nation we never were really founded no, it was no. a combination of some christian ideas but a lot of enlightenment ideas and you know our founding fathers were a mixed bag you know yeah. whatever they were you know jeff jefferson well, was a deist yeah. Uh, yeah i think george washington didn't even go to church you know it was like you know, they 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 believed, but they didn't believe like evangelicals believe. <laughs> well, interestingly, you know, the darling of the Christian nationalist movements are people like Ronald Reagan and and Donald Trump. Neither of which were I know. right. They were they In were not yeah. way. right. Uh, and and right. I'm not. I don't want to criticize either one of them necessarily, but they aren't the paragon of evangelical. No, they aren't. No, they're not the poster child of no, no, no. pure evangelical. That's for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's, that's very interesting, um, but disturbing. Um, you well, know, there are other offshoots to that. So I include in the book, a chapter on the end time theology. For okay. Instance, All right. Which, which when, if you really look at the Christian nationalist movement, a lot of it is being driven by uh some of the more radical, charismatic Pentecostal types of groups yeah. that are very, uh, very much sold on the end time, you know, Hal Lindsey and, and, uh, well, yeah, that the idea, you know, what I'm talking about. The, the problem with that is number one, it damages people. I, I've had former students that I've talked to who lived in abject fear their lives, their whole lives, because they were worried that they were going to miss the rapture. Right. 
right. it does psychological that, damage. No, that's true. People. Yeah. And then there's the issue of people that get into positions of power who have those ideas uh, will promote things like, let's move the capital of Israel to Jerusalem because right. the Bible wants us to do that, because that will right. usher in yeah. the right. return of Jesus somehow. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. Or, hey, you know what? The Bible is apocalyptic. There's really going to be a war between the forces of good and evil at some point. <laughs> well, people in positions of power can kind of make that happen if that's really what they believe. Right. So the end time theology is, in my estimation, a very, very dangerous notion and idea that if people I don't care if people believe it on the street, you know, I don't I'm not out to change what people believe, but people in power who have the ability to to uh, affect what happens, you know, with military and all kinds of policy. That's a very dangerous combination. That's true. Right. Yeah. I mean, that the end times thing is another big issue. It's like that was used to put fear in people, to convert people, yep. to keep people giving, keep people, you know, committed and, um, you know, uh, to to recruit people for evangelism all kinds of things and uh it's it's really sad because when you look at history again you realize oh actually jesus didn't really talk about coming back 2000 years in the future <laughs> that's yeah. another topic but you know yeah yeah well i've come to the i mean there there are lots of different ways that christianity uses that kind of fear yeah and I've kind of come to the conclusion that the two the two most prominent emotions that that evangelical churches especially uh, focus on are fear and guilt. Mm -hmm. And if they can manipulate those two things in people, which really isn't that hard to do. I mean, yeah. if people don't understand history or they don't sit back and reflect and they don't doubt and they don't ask questions then they can be manipulated through fear right. and guilt very easily. And there's a certain type of personality that is that 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 is um, vulnerable to that. And that, oh, that those are the kind of people who get drawn into the church. That yeah. they're they're already you know uh, don't have confidence and self esteem, and they want to get they want to fix that. So the church goes, well, all I got to do is this, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so, it's, it's a trap. <laughs> it is. It is. So um, we're running out of time, but a couple one a couple more questions I want to deal uh, uh, hear from you on is why one one of them is why is the Christian message a humanistic one? Hmm. Good question. Yeah, I came to that conclusion. You know, when I was in the Christian school movement, our big uh, one of our big uh, uh, enemies was humanism. You know, and we read yeah, secular humanism. That was the big yeah, thing. It yeah. wasn't wokeism. It was secular humanism. Yeah, today right? it's woke being woke. right, right. It's kind of yeah. the same thing. It's the same ways. kind of thing, right? But uh, it, it kind of take it, and I so I did my job to you know uh, rail against humanism and yeah, uh, right. Teach yeah. a Christian worldview and yeah, you can't yeah. be a humanist and be a Christian and you know so on and so forth. Well, once I began, once I went through this journey, this process, and began to deconstruct some of the all the stuff that I had, had learned, one of the realizations, and it kind of goes back to the Sermon on the Mount. As I kind of reread that, I always loved that section of the scripture anyway, but when I reread it with some new eyes, yeah, I realized, you know, I read through that whole three chapters and never once did I really see very much about anything about heaven, about hell, the next life? It was yeah. all about what kind of human being we should be here and now. Exactly. Right. And I began to realize, you know what? The, this teaching, Jesus's teachings are very, very humanistic. Jesus did not spend very much time at all talking about the afterlife or the mm -hmm. next life. He was most focused on how do we treat each other Exactly. Uh, how do we tr how do we deal with the marginalized people, the powerless, and how do we act in relation to the powers that be that control these things? It was a very humanistic message, and so I began to reevaluate re that, and I I I, I kind of it capsulized in I watched a movie called The Mission. I don't know if you're familiar with. Oh, that. I remember that movie. Yeah, sure. I love yeah. that movie, and that was good. 
yeah, it was good. And it, but it highlighted to me the story and I won't go into the whole story. You have to read the book, I guess. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the story highlighted the humanity of the Christian message. If it's presented in a way that helps us become better human beings. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, and that's kind of the upshot of the story. But so I'm kind of on a mission for myself, and this goes into a lot of different directions, but all of those things I used to teach <laughs> to kids, I'm trying to undo that now. My yeah. goal is right. to reteach this in a way that's humanistic. Jesus was a humanist. I know that's scandalous to people, uh, and people recoil sometimes, but uh, and and encourage my former students to doubt and ask questions. Yeah. They should have doubted everything I told them. <laughs> Right, you know, and so uh, my writings now, and I, I've got some other writings out there that I'm working on, and uh, all kinds of things. But a lot of it is designed to sort of maybe undo and, and help get a message out that's very different than what I used to teach. Well, I'm glad you're doing that. I mean, um, uh, it's it's tough though, but when you think about like what we, what both you and I had did in the past, and we. And, and, you know, we have to kind of realize that we were, we were, we were programmed. Look, you, you just told a very, very common story. You came into the church at 11 years old. Okay. So most people come into the evangelical church, either they grew up in it or they come in sometime in their formative years, you know, when they're young or in their twenties, when they're going through some kind of a crisis, Right. Mm -hmm. Most people, there, there are exceptions, but, and so that's, you get sucked into it and that's all, you know, and that's what you believe. Yeah. And, and it's really hard to get out of. So yeah, I, I, think, I call it a script. So you're handed a script. Yeah. When you become a evangelical Christian and which says, here's what you're supposed to believe. Here's how you're supposed to behave here. Of course, nobody behaved that way. <laughs> Yeah, nobody right. really lived that that way. Right, but they but it was prescribed. Yeah, but they felt guilty because they didn't live that way. Yeah, <laughs> didn't get the guilt. Right. So, uh, and and but none of it encouraged people to think for themselves. Right. Become the most the best human being yeah. that they could be. Right. Yeah. It was conformity. Right. It was yeah, and then, yeah, and then the definition was, of success was how well right. do you conform? How well do you conform? To the script. You know. And if if there was admonition to love others and do things, it was usually a ninety nine percent of the time it was a means to an end to convert yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. You know, be nice to them. Yes, love your enemy, and then you know, share Jesus and get them to accept Christ. Come into the church, then right? Not just notch. love them for love's sake, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can put another so, notch in the cross. You know. Yeah, yeah. Put a put a notch, right? So this has been great, Dan. Uh, I'm so glad that we've had a chance to get together. We had some technical difficulties when we first tried to connect, but we yeah, solved those. On that. Yeah. So, so uh, I'm so glad about that. Well, where can people learn more about um, you know buy the book, learn more about you and the and the book? Yeah, uh, I have a web page. Uh, I just put up an author web page here. Oh, good. And I'm going to, uh, a few weeks ago, actually, maybe a month or two ago. And uh, if people want to learn more about me or get, get a hold of the book, they can go to, this is, I'm going to give you the address, danhendersonauthor.com. And that okay. will take you to. All right. Danhendersonauthor.com. Yep. Okay. Great. And that's that's about all you need to, to, to have. And, and you'll get there. You'll see a little bit more about me in the book and. And uh, and it's so got on. a it's got a great cover. I wish I, I should have shown that. Had the, do you have the book right there to show the? Cover? I do, I do. Let me let me put it up yeah. here. I don't know if you can see there it. There you go. Yeah, I love that cover. So and yeah. I love the uh, subtitle: Overcoming Fear and Certainty to Find Faith Through Doubt and Questioning. Yeah. So thanks again, Dan. Uh, we're <laughs> going to sign off here, and uh, we'll we'll definitely keep in touch. Uh, I think we're. We've got the same publisher now, so yeah, <laughs> we'll be yeah. seeing each other more often. And yeah. folks, uh, can't wait to get your response to our conversation here and hope it's helped you. And we'll see you on the next uh, episode of the Spiritual uh, Brew Pub podcast. Enjoy yeah. responsibly. Thanks a lot, Michael, for having me. It's been fun. All right. Thanks, Dan. You bet. 
the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey in helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.